Welcome to Trade Finance Talks, a podcast from Trade Finance Global. During this series, we'll be hearing from global experts, as well as learning about the latest trends, technology and insights in the world of international trade and receivables finance. Episode 90. It was a phenomenal year, but that phenomena continues. I'm hearing from the members globally that they're still experiencing very strong growth in the first half of 2022. My name is Sebastian Patel, editor at Trade Finance Global. In just 20 years, the factoring industry has grown from 600 billion US dollars to over 3.4 trillion in 2021. Factoring and receivables finance are lifelines for SMEs and corporates around the world. And with the rise of technology, as well as trade receivables as an asset class, there's lots of potential to bring more liquidity into the market. Today, I'm talking to factoring expert Peter Mulroy, Secretary General of FCI. I'm catching up with Peter just after FCI's annual conference in Washington, which TFG were proud media partners of. Peter, welcome to Trade Finance Talks. Thank you, Deepesh. It's great to be here. Thank you. So brief introduction. I'm sure you need no introduction because everyone knows you already. But who are you? Where are you from? And what do you do? Okay. Well, um, Peter Mulroy. Uh, I'm American, but I'm based in the Netherlands. I'm the Secretary General of FCI. Uh, we are a nonprofit trade association headquartered here in the Netherlands with something like 400 members in 94 countries, obviously focusing on everything relating to traditional factoring, reverse factoring, supply chain finance, everything in the sphere of receivables finance. I've been in this industry now for over 25 years. I worked in the US in the factoring sector. And previously before that, I worked in traditional trade and corporate banking in the US. So great to be here. Thank you, Tipesh. Thank you. And I guess, you know, 400 members really represents a good proportion of the factoring market. And, and FCI releases its annual review each year and released it very recently. Now, for those readers who perhaps didn't read the whole review, can you give a bit of a background and can you run our listeners through some of the main takeaways for annual review? Yeah, we just released uh, the annual review. It's an annual report based on the performance of the factory and receivable finance industry, typically from the year before. So this is the 22 report uh, covering uh, the uh, fiscal year 2021. It is a, an amalgamation of quantitative and qualitative data that we get from our members through what we call our annual survey that we do in the first quarter of the year. And we take this data from really from all the 400 members and create this, let's say, report. It's The report's broken into different pieces. Is the main aspect is the annualized statistics, the qualitative report called the GIAR, which is our global industry analysis of this qualitative data. We have additional, let's say, talking points, obviously, from the various leaders of the industry. We have a roundtable that discusses, like, let's say, very important aspects, also regional analysis, so in-depth regional analysis that covers lots of different things, statistics, uh, regulatory, legal, promotion, the mood of the members, challenges, and of course, an outlook of the next year, twenty or this calendar year, 2022. There's a lot to glean from the report. I can just tell you, you mentioned the growth of the industry the last 20 years. 2020, we had a decline of about 6.5% due to the pandemic. 2021, we saw a significant turnaround, an increase of about 13.5%. It was about a three, close to $350 billion increase in volume. And that's after a $200 billion loss in volume in 2020. So we've more than made up for that drop and then some. And that growth is coming from a variety of drivers. One, of course, in a period of 
downturn, recession, and fear, typically we see a rise in non-recourse factors. That certainly happened, significant rise. The biggest increase that I ever witnessed in the last uh, 25 years in non-recourse. We also saw a significant rise in, in reverse factoring. That's just obviously been a, a general trend overall, but this was a 98% increase in 2021. We also saw, interestingly enough, a huge increase in uh, SME clients. So we look at the number of clients and the type of clients that are factored around the world. That number now is at the highest level we've ever seen it at 70% globally for the first time. We always have a categorization of the data, but we've drilled down this time to see what the picture looks like specifically in the manufacturing sector. Manufacturing distribution counts for something like two-thirds of the types of clients that use receivable finance around the world. But in the manufacturing space, the three areas, food, textiles, and apparel, and consumer products, electronics, for example, sold to retail, accounts for half of this number. So this report provides extreme in-depth view of what the data is telling us, gives us an indication of where the industry is heading. So it's a fantastic report, and I really appreciate that TFG is promoting it. And you can find it, obviously, in the FCI website, free of charge, of course, but it is the most important, let's say, annual reports that we do to provide the industry a true picture of the direction and nature of the industry. Just for some of our listeners that might be new to the industry, I think it would be good for you just to give an overview on what non-recourse factoring is versus reverse factoring. I think it's also important given the consideration of non-recourse taking on that bad debt risk and the reverse factoring, what some people would call supplier finance. Would you be able to give a quick definition of those two? Absolutely. I mean, historically, the industry was tethered to what we call recourse factoring or invoice discounting. And the difference in, in that and non-recourse course factoring is the factor, the financial institution providing this receivable finance service is taking the risk of the debtor, of the buyer, of the client's customer, so that if the debtor defaults or files bankruptcy, then the client, the seller, who's basically has factored their accounts and has received funding, there is no recourse back to them. The recourse by the FI, by the financial institution, is only technically with the debtor, with buyers. So if there is a default or bankruptcy, then they're taking on they're taking 100% of that risk. It obviously allows the seller, the client, to sleep at night. Providing non-recourse factoring is also has an off-balance sheet treatment so that when the seller does assign its receipt to the factor and on a non-recourse basis, they convert that obviously to cash from the standpoint of the factor. Of course, it's enhanced risk, but that's why the seller appreciates it because they're basically taking all the risk. The only risk category that still remains for the client, the seller, is if there was some type of dilution event, which means that there was some issue relating to the merchandise or the services provided. A reverse factoring is similar in the sense that it's also treated as a non-recourse event whereby the, a seller produces of the invoice assigns their receivables on a non-recourse basis. And in the case of reverse factoring, the buyer obligates itself to pay that invoice at the due date, really without any conditions. It doesn't allow them to issue a dispute against that particular invoice at the time and basically gives the financial institution the confidence that they can fund these invoices with these uh, sellers, the clients, vendors of the buyer. It gives them that confidence that they know for certain that they're going to get paid. And the only risk that the FI has is the buyer does file bankruptcy. But on these reverse programs, typically they are providing the service only to strong investment rated companies. That's the difference. Thanks for providing some clarity over that. And I think it's very important to take that into consideration, particularly when you talk about payment risk and the current macroeconomic and geopolitical 
climate, right? Because I think it's fair to say there's expected risk in credit risk in the second half of 2022, given we're seeing a withdrawal of state support as we recover, fingers crossed, from the impacts of the pandemic. Then we're also seeing the additional pressures from the Russia-Ukraine conflicts, the a huge rise in, in inflation, followed by the commodity price hike, although we've seen a bit of an easing. My question is, what's the expectation for the remainder of 2022? And given that rise in both of those non-recourse types of financing, what can we expect that to factoring industry? Interestingly enough, after this phenomenal year we had in 2021, led by Europe, 15%, America's up 22%, Asia up 8%. It was a phenomenal year, but that phenomena continues. I'm hearing from the members globally that they're still experiencing very strong growth in the first half of 2022. I'm hearing increases in mostly double digit, as high as 30% in some markets. It really bodes well for at least the industry. As you know, historically, the factoring and receivable finance industry does extremely well during and after times of crisis. One, I mentioned because there is a demand for risk products to eliminate or reduce the risk. And of course, non-recourse factoring does that, providing and eliminating the sizable risk on the balance sheet of that, that seller by taking that buyer risk. On average, globally, this was another, let's say, outcome of our report. I think it was something like on a balance sheet of a seller, it's something like 40% of their assets are receivables. It is their largest concentration of risks. And during boom and bust cycles that we're seeing, and now to your point, the increase in, in inflation and interest rates and war. And I mean, these are all, let's say, consequential events individually. Now having them all at the same time, obviously it's having negative repercussions. I don't see that in the volume of the industry. Part of that due to the fact that inflation has been so significant that there is obviously a large influence in the average invoice size of companies to inflationary pressure. This is obviously having a positive effect on the volumes. Obviously, it erodes confidence. It will suck out liquidity. It will lead to enhanced commercial risk. It's not a positive. It does have a short-term, obviously, benefit. The war itself, obviously, very destabilizing. I'm seeing that here in the Netherlands, a significant decline in, in consumer confidence. People are on the fence making decisions. You see that in the real estate markets, changing drastically. It is a confusing time. I do anticipate, though, that uh, yeah, what the insurance companies were predicting in 2020 one did not come to pass. A lot of these, let's say, zombie companies and leveraged entities would be affected once you had this, uh, let's say, reduction in state support and stimulus programs. We haven't seen that. But I think with everything else happening, yes, 2022 is going to be a challenging year. We heard this from the Wells Fargo economists during uh, our annual meeting. Uh, we heard this as well from Dr. George Friedman, our, our keynote speaker, who was fantastic, by the way, who gave a synopsis, too, of the concerns encroaching economies around the world. I think it's going to be a bumpy year next year, but I think 2022 is relatively locked up and uh, I think we're going to end the year on a high note. It won't be as strong as last year, but it will be as good. I mean, you're hearing, of course, the effects of the gas and oil influence from the war here in Europe, for example. It's quite uh, alarming if you do have, in a sense, a blockade of, of gas and energy into Western Europe from Russia, what kind of effect that's going to have on manufacturing and trade. But again, I don't see that affecting 2022 per se. It will be more next year. 
Sure. And it really shows almost that counter cyclical nature of factoring and receivables finance in comparison to economic boom and bust. Am I right in, in summarizing that in the short term, due to that high inflationary pressure that we're seeing in the market, it is causing an increase in real terms on those invoice finance or the invoice amounts and the volumes. And that's kind of potentially contributing towards the increase in factoring volumes. It's probably a short term piece because the wider economic effects of inflation could cause a slowdown to the economy and might bring those volumes back down. On the other hand, due to the geopolitical conflict, the wider macroeconomic picture, the reduction of state support and stimulus post-pandemic probably causes companies to explore that concentration risk on their balance sheet, which is outstanding or unpaid receivables and invoices. And they're looking to banks and FIs to support. Is that a fair summary? Extremely well said. I mean, I couldn't say it any better, quite frankly. I mean, you have this interesting period of continuous pressure on supply chains, increased inventory levels, which is pressuring buyers to request longer terms on these receivables. And then, of course, these receivable valuations are higher. So there's more financial liability on behalf of the corporate buyers. It's a very strange time. It's almost like, you know, we're looking out the window and everything is calm and good in the house. But you look outside the window, you're seeing all this uh, almost like a perfect storm of events occurring that uh, is bringing incredible amount of fear. And you're hearing that everywhere. I think, uh, again, short term, to your point, all these points, it's relatively positive story, but medium term, a really big question mark. Like you said, it's a counter-cyclical sector. We do very well during times of crisis, as long as we manage the risk properly. And there are always surprises. And we saw that in the US in 2020, when there were all, every week there was a major retailer the filing bankruptcy due, due to the pandemic. This is going to test uh, the credit culture this crisis next year. But the great thing about our industry is that there is such a close pulse to the buyers, to the retailers, to the wholesalers. We'll continue to keep that close pulse. And uh, I can only imagine we'll get through this you know, quite well. And this, and fear drives people to our industry. Fear is a catalyst because people want protection. Traditional banks that are financing, let's say, unsecured basis or also tend to want to shift from that to a more secured basis. And of course, receivable finances is what they typically tend to focus on. I see banks also getting into this industry even more. I think there'll be more investments in the coming years. Interesting, because when I did a study back um, after the financial crisis in 0809, I did a study to see how the industry performed in the United States during the Great Depression. And of course, what happened after the Great Recession, you saw a huge number of banks invest in receivables finance after both crises. And so I see this time as no different. I think there's going to be another rush to the gate, so to speak. The problem is that it's such a specialized industry that they need talent. You can't just invent invoice finance culture or DNA in your institution. You can buy it, you can bring it on, but training and strategy is so important in this evolution. And uh, this is the concern that I have always, but this is the why FCI exists. That's our core competency. I always say our training and education is 50 years of mistakes, 50 years of problems, 50 years of crises. So it's the best education that you can offer anybody. I recall your article you wrote for us in, in May 2020, and you said history does have a way of repeating itself. And if there's any indication, and factoring should see a significant rebound in, in 2021. So I guess I can definitely call on you. Thank you for that. Back to your annual report. And I guess to your point earlier on fear, I note that Gavin Tarr, I think FNB's head of debt to finance said, there is often much focus on financial and credit rating, yet the real failure often happens due to a fraud event or poor governance. How can companies effectively tackle fraud? What are you seeing in the market right now? 
Fraud is our industry's worst enemy. It could completely destroy a company. We've seen that historically. You have a history of huge fraud cases. And of course, the most recent Greensill, but Carillion, Abengoa, Pescanova, Banamex had a huge fraud in, in Mexico. These are extremely consequential, taking out billions uh, of losses in the trade and receivables finance industry. I would say that it is a destabilizer. The method of preparation is everything. And the method of preparation, meaning investing in technology, the technology being the ability to have uh, reports providing you guidance relating to red flags, whether they be red flags on payments, red flags in concentrations, red flags, dilution events, questionable activities that normally should not happen, or just the opposite, the picture being too rosy, too perfect. These are things that, that a good system will be able to inform you of. And then the training, the training relating to preparation, relating to fraud. FCI has an incredible course on fraud and protection, how to prevent fraud events. You know, when a fraud occurs, it will occur. You generally can't prepare for it not to happen because a good fraudster is going to pull the wool over your eyes. The power in preparation is to ensure that the fraud doesn't continue. And you hear the worst case scenarios is when they continue and they build up and the fraudster takes advantage of the weaknesses within the system. You have to prepare, you have to have, invest in the training. And again, this is one of the cornerstones that FCI Academy provides. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Peter. Now, I'm afraid we've just got a couple of minutes left, so I'm going to have to round up with a final question. And I would like you to to talk about receivables exchanges because that's one thing I noted in annual report. But what are the next big priorities for FCI for the remainder of 22? And also, why is FCI considering investing in receivables exchanges? It's a new phenomenon, meaning it's not something that's here today. It exists in really in small pockets. There's been a 20-year investment history in, in these the concept of receivables exchange. It's a convergence of the ability to have the technology, the capability of having not just domestic trade, but international trade being utilized on an exchange. I mean, what is an exchange? I mean, it is a, the ability for a company that wants financing to get the best price, to be able to bring their invoices into an exchange and have companies bid on the paper, bid on the exposure, on the risk. I think in the past, issues relating to dilution, issues relating to fraud and other things have caused losses to those companies that have attempted investing in it. But today, with the convergence of this strong technology, and especially blockchain, we're going to see a strong growth in the formation of these receivables exchanges. The opportunity for companies, phenomenal. And you look at all the different asset classes out there, whether it be soft commodities like grains, soybeans, hard commodities like gold, silver, stocks, these asset classes all have their own exchange. If you combine all of the volume in the receivables finance sector, it's probably well over between five and six trillion US dollars. That's a sizable sector to warrant the development of a sound exchange for the industry. You know, very interested in this topic. I think it was premature 20 years ago when the receivables exchange was formed, but I'm optimistic today and I, I'm quite excited about it. In fact, and I just wrote an article and of course, Steepish, I think you guys are going to publish it on my behalf, on FCI's behalf. So thank you very much. It's been such a pleasure having you on Trade Finance Talk, just kind of unpacking your annual report, the evolution of the factoring and receivables industry, what the key drivers are from a macroeconomic, geopolitical, inflationary perspective, and also kind of 
of splitting apart the natural positive evolution and growth of the industry, but also coupled with what we're seeing in the market. And I think they are very positive times for the factoring industry. And I think we're going to see continued growth. And I guess with that growth comes development of the market as an asset class. And, and you've talked through, you've given us a bit of an overview of receivables exchanges, their potential, and also lots of potential for SME access to finance as well, because I think that's one of the key. From Washington back to London, Peter, thank you so much for joining us on Trade Finance Talks. We're looking forward to the receivables exchange article as well. We'll speak to you soon. Thank, thank you. you very much, Deepesh. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Trade Finance Talks. Be sure to subscribe to our podcasts at tradefinanceglobal.com.